seated. Today, we're asking the question, what does the Bible say about gender? We're in a personhood series this August, kind of focusing in on what is a person. And today, we are looking at the topic of gender. But before we dig into this, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been absolutely, confoundingly lost? Have you ever been traveling somewhere and been absolutely lost? I mean, like completely baffled as to where you are. Anybody? Yeah, I'm seeing lots of hands, and I resonate with that. Thank you for that. Uh, Yeah, I have been there more times than I could count. I have drugged my wife into that situation more times than she would like. I can remember the first time that this country boy found himself in downtown Dallas. I was 18, a freshman at DBU, and a friend from Dallas had rode shotgun with me to get me to the Gypsy Tea Room in Deep Ellum. Anybody remember the Gypsy Tea Room? I went there to see some band that I'm sure I thought was the greatest band in the world for three weeks and then forgot about forever. Uh, But that friend, he rode back with someone else, which left me trying to figure out where to go. He had been my guide. So I know for some of you here, you cannot imagine that there was a time where you couldn't just pull out your phone, click on a Maps app, and then get it to take you wherever you wanted to go. But that time existed, and it was this time, okay? I didn't have a smartphone. They weren't even really around. I did not know how to get back to DBU. I had no idea where it was. It was like 1 a.m. I was driving through Dallas. I was absolutely lost. And so this is what I had to do. And for some of you, this is going to blow your mind. I had to call a friend who I knew, I knew their phone number. So I had to like know their phone number, type it in. I called a friend back on campus at DBU and I said, I need you to wake up. I need you to log on to your computer. I need you to go to mapquest.com and I need to give you an address and put in DBU's address and I need you to walk me step by step uh, all the way back to campus. And he did that. Uh, We were not friends long after that. (laughs) I was absolutely lost, terribly confounded. I had no idea where to go. Why do I tell you all this? Why do I tell you all this? I tell you this because very few people ever have someone sit down with them and say, let me tell you what a man is. Very few people have somebody sit them down and say, I'd like to tell you and show you what a woman is. And that is already pretty confusing. We start to try to assemble in our mind what it means to be a man or woman, and we do it from different pictures or ideas or people or movie. And these sources are often, particularly in the most formative years of our life, these sources are most often bad. They're very bad sources. And so we begin to be kind of a hodgepodge of what we think maybe uh, it looked like there was this one time where a man was this or a woman was that. And that's hard. That's difficult. It's a terribly confusing thing. But if you take that tragic and culturally pervasive reality and then you put it into a cultural moment where very loud voices in our world are prepared to deny that gender Living as a man or woman you were created to be is a biological and God-ordained reality. If you take that confusion that already exists in young hearts and minds and then you put it into an incubator of cultural confusion, you wind up with a chaotic situation, with a situation that will create incredible collateral damage and is. And you might not know it. You don't know where you might end up But you will end up incredibly lost, terribly confused, and needing step-by-step instructions to get to a place of truth, to get to a place of meaning, to get to a place of good. So today in our series, What is a Person?, we're going to explore the topic of gender. 
We're going to explore the topic of gender, and I want to avoid treating this topic callously, okay? And I want to avoid treating this topic comedically, because that's really the two dominant approaches in our culture right now. If you're going to talk about it, you either have to talk about it callously, or you have to make light of it. It's not something that should be made light of. It's a very serious thing. It's living embodied lives as men or women. And that's a very important thing. So I don't want to treat it callously. And I don't want to treat it comedically. I don't want to make light of it. And I don't want to be flippant with the real life experiences that many people have in a confusing and broken world. I want us to try to see if the Bible can provide some clarity for us at a crucial moment where we need clarity. So we're going to ask three questions. You can write them down. You want to kind of have an outline of what we're going to do. The first, what is gender? What does the Bible say about gender? What is gender? That's the first one. The second one, what do men and women share? What do we share in common? And then the third, how are we different? How are we different? I'm going to read Genesis 2, 18 through 25. You've already heard it. I'm going to read it for us again. And after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond, thanks be to God. The reason we do that is because we want to thank God that he hasn't left his people in silence. He has spoken. We want to hear God's word and give thanks for it. Let me read Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. You can follow along with me. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we start with the question, what does the Bible say about gender? It's important for us to just get clear on the question, what is gender? What are we talking about when we talk about gender? And we have to talk about this now because there is, intentionally so, been a confusion of terms. And it has been an, an intentional confusion. The terms were very clear for most of the last 300, 400 years of discourse on these matters. But in the last 30 or 40, they've been intentionally confused so as to make foggy that which is actually abundantly clear in our natural lives. Gender. Gender, or our sex, our biological sex, is male or female. It, it, gender is not how we live out our biological sex. Gender is not how we present ourselves. Gender, gender is not how we feel about our biological sex. Gender is our biological sexed bodies. It is a given. It is a part of nature. It is a part of natural design. It has all of the imprints of an artist upon it. And it is not arbitrary. It's intentional. Gender is our embodied existence as men or women. It's a God-ordained reality. We see this in the creation account. God creates Adam, and out of Adam he creates 
Eve. And there is both sameness and distinction in Adam and Eve. And we'll get to the sameness and we'll get to the distinction. But it's crucial, like you heard last week in Genesis 1, that God created them in his image. He, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is two genders in the world by virtue of God's creative work. There is male and there is female. It is a God-ordained reality. But it's not just a God-ordained reality. It's a biological fact. It's a biological fact. It's not just some deliverance of divine revelation that gender exists. It is also the obvious common sense realism of any doctor looking at any child ever. Gender is a God-ordained reality. It is a biological fact. And it is good. Gender is good. It's a good thing. And I want you to hear me say this. I want you to hear me say it clearly. Men, it is wonderful and good that you are a man. It's good that you're a man. I'm glad if you're a man that you're a man. Okay? Just let me make it as simple as I can be. God created you as a man. By the power and grace of God, if you become a good man, which does take the power and grace of God, it's good for you and it's good for the world. Because you know what? The world needs men who fear God above all else, who love fiercely, who dream, who build and cultivate good things. That's true. Women, sisters, I need you to hear me. It is good and wonderful that you're a woman. If you're a woman, I'm glad that you're a woman. You know why? Because God created you as a woman. And by the power and grace of God, and it requires the power and grace of God, if you become a good woman, it's good for you, and it's good for the world. That's a good thing. The world needs women who fear God above all else, love fiercely, dream, build, and cultivate good things. Gender is a good gift from God. From the very beginning, it was a good gift from God. Not that we would be alone, not that we would be homogenous, but that we would be united in our distinctiveness. That we would come together in partnership, in love, as a team, as a family. Gender is our biological sex. Gender is not primarily the roles we play. It has consequence on the roles we play, but it's not primarily the roles we play. Gender is certainly not accurately reflected in our tastes or our preferences. It's fundamentally our anatomical and biological design. It is. Men and women, we're wired differently. And we're not just wired differently at an emotional level, though that can be true. We are actually wired differently at a genetic level. At a genetic level, men have one X and one Y chromosome in their cells. Women have two X chromosomes in their cells. Men have different anatomical parts than women. This is on purpose. It's not a happy accident. It's not a mistake. We were designed as anatomical, physiological complements. We're two pieces of a puzzle and we're meant to fit together in partnership, in friendship, in intimacy, in our homes, in our churches, in our communities. The differences and our biological design are fundamental. And they're the work of a creator God who designed the world to work in a rhythm, in an order, with a purpose, with intention and design. We did not uh, arrive here accidentally. We arrived here on purpose. 
Gender is our biological design. It's reflected not just in our wiring emotionally or spiritually, though it can be, but fundamentally and firstly in our biology and the nuts and bolts of what it means to be a person. We're embodied creatures. Christians sometimes can have this view that we're really the body is just kind of a cage for the soul. That's not how God's designed us. The body's not a cage for the soul that the soul is longing to escape. We have been designed as unities of body and soul. And our gender is crucial to that. And to living life in a way that's congruent with what God has for us in the world. Our biological design, it shapes us. It doesn't just shape who we are. It shapes the unique way we partner together. Men's bodies are different as a category norm from women's bodies. Men's bodies as a category are designed for provision and protection. Does this mean that women can't or shouldn't provide or protect? Not at all. That's not what it means. It's just to say that the bodies of men as a norm are uniquely suited at the skeletal level, at the muscular level, for work that requires duress, labor, battle, physical duress, It is to say that men's bodies are uniquely designed for bearing unique physiological strain in work. That's it. That's it. But women's bodies as a category are not somehow subpar. They play a different role in partnership. They're designed as a norm for cultivation and care. Does this mean that men can't or shouldn't cultivate care? No, not at all. It's just to say that women's bodies are uniquely designed for the cultivation of life and for the care and sustenance of life. We know this. All of us are recipients of this benefit. All of us are recipients of the unique partnership that men and women play together in life and living. And I know, I know that I know that I know that for some of you this sounds so old-fashioned. It sounds so antiquated. It sounds so maybe even backwards. But the reality is, is that what the Bible does is it honors everything that men and women can do together while denigrating none of it. And so often we're told that to honor one thing is to diminish the next. The Bible's not playing that game. The Bible's going to commend male and female leadership in home, in government, and the church. The Bible's going to commend male and female partnership in home, in government, and the church. The Bible's going to commend the unique roles that men and women play throughout the story of Scripture. You're going to meet female entrepreneurs, and you're going to meet male apostles who are also tent makers. You're going to meet them all because the Bible never says to honor one thing is necessarily to diminish the other thing. It holds them in glorious tension together. What the Bible has to say about gender can feel foreign to us, but it's often because we've been immersed in a new normativity that isn't normal to anyone but our present moment. You don't have to be a man to be a person. You don't have to be a woman to be a person. But you are a woman or you are a man by God's design and by biological reality. We exist in gendered bodies, and this isn't accidental Our genders are not assigned, our genders are not arbitrary, our genders are not fluid, nor are they subject to our preferences or feelings. Our gender is a given gift by God to each person by natural design. It's not an accident. It's on purpose. You are a man because God has declared it to be. And it is good for you to be a man. You are a woman because God has declared for it to be. And it is good for you to be a woman. 
We don't have to be bashful about gender. We don't have to be bashful about it. It is a good gift from God. He has designed us, and his design is good. And the reality of this design has not been merely accepted by Christians. This isn't some unique kind of truth that Christians uniquely believe, although we have unique grounding for it. It's not something that's unique to Christians. In the history of civilization, there has been widespread agreement that men and women exist as different kinds of genders. It's not a new thing. It's not novel. It's not like we're breaking the mold. We're not breaking new ground here. And if it's so clear, you might wonder, well, why all the confusion on something that seems so straightforward? Well, there's a number of reasons why, some of which we have to own and some of which we have to acknowledge. Sin has impacted everything. And one of the principal reasons why there's confusion on any matter in our world is because of the impact of sin. Sin impacts everything. And because of that, it twists everything that it touches. And that includes the way we view ourselves. It includes the way we view others. And so we should not be surprised to find that there is confusion and mounting confusion on the question of gender because the impact of sin is great. That's the first reason why it's not so clear. The second reason is enculturated understandings of masculinity and femininity. Okay, now these are understandings of what it means to be a man, to be a woman, that actually don't derive from Scripture, but just kind of the cultural narratives and projections around us. Unfortunately, in the world and in the church, stereotypes of masculinity and femininity have created confusion on the question of gender. Let me give you some examples. You, probably, you may have heard these in the church. Real men like to hunt and fish. Yeah? Real men like to hunt and fish. Listen, if you're a guy who likes to hunt and fish, hunt and fish. I'm for it. You know what I'm saying? As long as you share your spoils with me, right? I'm thrilled if you like to hunt and fish, but it doesn't have any bearing on your masculinity. Women love pink and they love rom-coms, right? That's not, a, that's not something that derives from Scripture. It's not like it's like, okay, God has created a woman and now women are going to love pink. You can search the Scriptures. You're not going to find any mention of pink, Okay? So, no, that's a cultural projection on what it means to be a woman. These kinds of distinctions are simplistic. And rather than creating clarity, they create confusion because they are really matters of taste, of preference. And oftentimes, one can find themselves not according with what the cultural tastes around masculinity or femininity are and then wondering, well, if I don't really like that and they say that all men like that, then I must not be a man. I don't really like that, and they say all women like that, and I don't really like that, then I must not be a woman. These cultural projections, they don't create clarity, they create confusion. Let me give you an example of a cultural projection that I live my life standing against. I take baths. I love baths. Thank you. Thank you for an amen. Uh, I love baths. I love putting stuff in the bath. I love bubble baths. I love bath salts. I like to make it as aromatic as possible. I like taking baths, okay? Now, when I've said that before, people will say, they're like, well, really? You take baths that much? Because bath taking is something typically associated with women for whatever reason. I don't know why. I didn't come up with the rules, culture's rules. But guess what? Me taking baths has no bearing on my masculinity at all. I just like baths. If I took more showers, I wouldn't be more masculine. It's a matter of taste or preference. 
We live with these, and that one's a silly one, but there's all sorts of serious ones that push themselves onto our lives and think if you were a real man or if you were a real woman, this is what it would be like. And social media has just amplified that. I know many of you, men and women, there are people that you follow on social media and you almost follow them because they're holding out an ideal for you and then you shame yourself based off of not living up to their standards. This super dad or this super mom, this superman or this superwoman, if I could just do that, I'd be a real woman. If I could just do that, I'd be a real mom. If I could just do that, I'd be a real wife. If I could just do that, I'd be a real man. If I could just do that, I'd be a real husband. If I could just do that, I'd be a real dad. These things, they're echo chambers of cultural projections, forcing themselves upon us, not creating clarity, but creating confusion. Those are two of the biggest reasons, but there are two other reasons why there is such confusion on gender. The first are the false stories of misogynism and radical feminism. Misogynism and radical feminism have both worked hard to try and create division between men and women in order to exalt either man or woman over the other gender. They're supremacy gambles. That's what misogynism and radical feminism are. And in some ways, radical feminism is a reaction to radical misogynism. And in that way, it's kind of culturally understandable. But both tracks are supremacy gambles. That in order to assert worth, I have to diminish someone else. But the Bible doesn't do that. We don't have to diminish someone else or a group of someone's in order to know that we are worthy of unconditional dignity. Last week we looked at it. We're image bearers. We don't have to contest and battle over scraps of dignity. God gives it freely in his design of humans. So that's a reason. And then this is the most pressing at our present moment. In the last few decades, we've seen a new ideology of gender emerge as one of the main rotten fruits of the sexual revolution of the 20th century. And the roots of this ideology go way far back, like all the way back to a French philosopher named Descartes in the 16th century. And it's been cultivated over the last 40 or 50 years. And as it's been cultivated, we are now getting to see some of the worst fruits of that revolution. We're getting to see a kind of androgynous culture develop where the idea of maleness and femaleness is no longer seen as a distinct good, but as maybe even a harmful reality. And this is a new thing. It's a new thing in the life of the world, and it's moving at an accelerated pace, unlike very much of what we've ever seen. This ideology is willing to deny the objective truth of gender and the biological reality in order to exalt the individual as the sovereign chooser and ruler of the self. But like the Heidelberg Catechism says, we really don't fundamentally belong to ourselves. We fundamentally belong to God. And the Christian enters into the church of Jesus Christ saying, I am no longer mine, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who gets to set the terms for our life and living, not us. And we have to, in ways that are met with both compassion and conviction, we have to stand athwart the present momentum of our culture, and to offer up a compelling witness that is marked by love and truth that says, no, we will continue to live as men and women because it is what God has created us to be and we want to live in ways that accord with his creation. What do men and women share? 
if gender is our biological design and it shapes us at a fundamental level, if it's reflected in our anatomical differences, and if it shapes the role we play in joint partnership, before we go on to distinctiveness, we need to talk about sameness. Because look at Genesis 2, 18 through 25. When Adam sees Eve, what does he say? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And is that in the song primarily about difference or about sameness? Look at it. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The narrative so far in Genesis 2 has been Adam looking around creation, looking for a helper fit for him. He can't find any. Why? Because they're all too different. They're all too different. So God creates woman out of man, and his song begins as a celebration of similarity. His song begins as a celebration of similarity. There is kind of in the popular understanding this idea, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. We're so fundamentally different as to be unintelligible to each other. And yet that does not accord with what we find in Scripture. Men and women are not portrayed as so fundamentally different that we can't even understand one another. We're portrayed as similar enough to be able to partner together. That's Adam's song over Eve. So when we ask the question, what do men and women share we got to go back to last week. We share the essentials of personhood. We share the essentials of personhood. We looked at these last week, but by way of review, men and women are both creatures. We're creatures. We're not God. We're not God. We're not created limitless. We're created with limits. And even our own bodies are a testimony to our limitations. We're creatures. We have limits. Do you know what? I cannot bear a child. My body was not designed to bear children. My body was not designed to nurse children. It wasn't. It's not a body built for that. That is a limit. We are creatures created with limits. Those limits are not just reflected in our mind or our emotional life. They're not just re reflected in our inability to be everywhere at once or to know all things. They're reflected in our bodies themselves. It's a creaturely limitation. Men and women are both creatures. We are not the creator God, but we're not just any creatures. We're not like lions and dogs and cats and bears. No, no, no. We're different because we are image-bearing creatures. We are image-bearers of God. We're distinct in the scope of creation. You and I are not like other things. This is why for all that the Christian can and should care about good environmental stewardship, we cannot embrace the spirit of our age that says, well, functionally, we're just like everything else in creation. We're not. We're not like everything else in creation. We're different. We're unities of body and soul created in the image of God. Both men and women are created in God's image and worthy of equal dignity and honor. We're creatures created in the image of God but we're also members. We're communal. We are meant for relationships and not just relationships of survival, but relationships of joy. You'll find animals that pack together in order to survive. You will not find many that will grieve the loss of another. But we are image-bearing creatures who created for meaningful fellowship to not just survive together, but to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, to mourn with those who are mourning. It's a kind of vulnerable fellowship. It's not like fellowship and partnership for survival. It's something more meaningful than that. And it's the unique prerogative 
of creatures created in the image of God, male and female. And lastly, men and women are partners. We're partners. Both men and women are equal partners in the task that God has entrusted to humanity. In Genesis 1, God creates man in his own image. And then it says, after he's created them, in verse 28, God blessed them. It doesn't say God blessed him. It doesn't say God blessed her. It says God blessed them. And God said to, not him, not her, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blesses, not him, not her, them. He does not uh, commission him or her. He commissions them. God blesses and commissions men and women together, equal partners in worth, equal partners in duty and responsibility, working together. No one else in all of creation could be the proper partner to a man but a woman. No one else in all of creation could be a proper partner to a woman but a man. That is how God has designed the world. And it's not just reflected in marriage. Although marriage is an incredible portrayal of it, an example of it, a picture of it. But this isn't just an admonition that's supposed to be reflected in marriage. It's supposed to be reflected anywhere where there is a group of people that are partnering together to do what God has called us to do in the world, in the church, in the world, in jobs, in the government, working together in partnership, equal in worth, equal in responsibility. When Adam sees Eve in the garden, he sings a song because they both share in the essentials of personhood. Adam and Eve are persons and nothing else in all of creation is. He rejoices that she's a creature made in the image of God, prepared for membership in meaningful fellowship and community so that partnership may happen together. This quote from Herman Bovink is really just, it hits the nail on the head. Not in man alone, nor in woman alone, but in both together, and in a special way, the image of God is expressed. Are men and women interchangeable? No. No, for while we share many things in common, there are many ways in which we are different. And we want to lean into our similarities while appreciating our distinctiveness. And Genesis 2, 18 through 20 gives us signals for this. How are men and women different? If we share in the essentials of personhood, how is this differentiated in our lives as men and women, respectively? Well, the first, which we've mentioned a lot, is physiological. Our bodies are purposefully different. Our bodies are purposefully different. We are anatomical complements. We have different parts. We have different parts. Our bodies are meant to fit together. In verse 24, you hear this. Adam has rejoiced in the similarity that Eve shares with him. And then in verse 24, you hear, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The one flesh union of Adam and Eve is a reflection that our bodies are meant to fit together. Principally, that happens within the context and covenant of marriage, but it is spiritually reflected anywhere you find healthy communities of men and women in Christ together. The one flesh union is a union between a husband and a wife, but we as men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, we do not all share a one flesh union, but we do share a one body union male or female, we find ourselves together in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. We are different physiologically. 
There are also functional differences. We play different notes in the same song. We play different notes in the same song. That's a good thing. It's a good thing we play different notes in the same song. You ever heard a song that doesn't have a harmony? It's lacking. You ever hear a song that doesn't have a melody line? It's lacking. Songs are meant for melody and harmony to go together. One isn't greater than the other. They're both crucial for the other. They're essential for a beautiful song. And that's exactly what God is up to creating with men and women partnering together in marriage, in family, in church, in community, in government. He is seeking for us to play a beautiful song, but we don't play the same line. We don't play the same line. There are differences. As a group norm, men have bodies that are more suited for protection and provision Cultivate and subdue is a part of the original mandate. God tells them that. God tells Adam and Eve, you're going to have to go out and cultivate and subdue. Almost every ancient Near Eastern scholar that looks back on this period and that studies Genesis will tell you that it is reading as if Eden was a small slice of a world. And outside of Eden was land waiting to be cultivated. We know Eden was geographically located between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Eden was not the whole of the world, even though we often imagine that it was. God intended for Adam and Eve to multiply image bearers and to go out into a world that was not properly ordered, not good, and to cultivate it in keeping with what God's will was for the world. That was going to be tough. That was going to be tough. Even without the brokenness of sin, and it would require a kind of ability to endure hard labor. Do you ever wonder why one of the supreme consequences of sin that's directed towards Adam is that work is going to be toil? Why? Because his body's uniquely built for it. His body's uniquely built for it. 1 Peter 3, 7, in a verse that almost nobody in our present day likes to hear, so I've already lost you, but stick with me. It's not my words. It's the words of Peter in 1 Peter. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, everybody just kind of breathe for a second, because I know when you hear something like that, you just, it amps you up, maybe. And it's okay. There's a lot of speculation and confusion on this verse. There are some who have abused this verse to suggest that this uh, uh, is, is speaking to a kind of inferiority, cognitively or emotionally. Almost no New Testament scholar worth their salt suggests that reading. It's not the dominant course of reading in the history of interpretation, nor is it the dominant course of reading in the original language today. Almost every New Testament scholar and Peter scholar will look at this and tell you that Peter is talking about the physiological difference between women and men that there is, a, there is a, not just a built-in consequence for Adam's sin, but when you look at Genesis 3, there is a built-in consequence for the sin of humanity that bears on Eve specifically. That the way that a woman's body works is that there are times in which physiological weakness becomes pronounced. And those times are irregular. And when that happens, there is a sense in which the man is responsible for bearing some heaviness, for bearing some labor, and that Peter is admonishing husbands to do something that no one else in the culture at the time would have done, which is to show a unique kind of honor to women, knowing that their bodies are different. Their bodies are different. We, we read this now, and it sounds antiquated. In Peter's time, it would have sounded radical. It would have sounded like, whoa, 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 are you telling us that when our wives don't feel good and the kids are crazy, 
and all of the other household duties have to go on, and the world is still going, and I still have to work, you're telling me that I should be prepared to bear a lot on my shoulders? Peter's saying, yes. Yes, you should be prepared to do that because you have been built differently, and you should honor the Lord in the way you live your life given that. Men's bodies are built differently, built for protection and provision, even under duress. As a group norm, we see women have bodies that are more suited for cultivation and care. Genesis 2.18, we hear the language of helper. We hear the language of helper. I will make him a helper fit for him. Another word and another verse that are terribly brought out of context, regard, uh, uh, resulting in confusion, misunderstanding more often than not. The word for helper that's used here is the Hebrew word azer. Azer. Do you know, what, you know what the word azer is used for across the Psalms? God. God. A strong helper. Helper isn't a word of diminishment. It's a word of honor. It's a word of majesty. It's a word of beauty. It's a word that's ascribed to God. When God says, I'm going to find him a helper fit for him, he's not diminishing Eve. He's not diminishing or denigrating woman. He's honoring her. He's honoring her with a title that's fit for those who partner with people in need. So when you look at these ways that we're different, let me just go ahead and clear the air of areas where you might go, well, is this what you're saying? Because I just want to go ahead and anticipate some of these things. Does this mean that men are strong and women are weak? No, not at all. It doesn't mean that. It means men and women as group norms have distinct strengths and weaknesses. And they're not always the same. They're not always the same. We have distinct embodied strengths and weaknesses. And we need one another. We need one another in friendship. We need one another in partnership. We need one another in marriage. It does not mean that men are strong and women are weak. That's not what the Bible says here. It's not what the testimony of Scripture is from beginning to end. It's merely to say that because of how we're built, which is by design, there are limitations. There are differences on our bodies. Does this mean all women are supposed to be beacons of nurturing care and all men are supposed to be hunter-gatherers ready for battle? No, I hope not. Um, <laughs> no, it means that we collaborate with the other gender in meaningful ways, given all our purposeful embodiment so that all might flourish. It means that our partnership and collaboration takes into account how God has built us differently. And he has built us differently. Does this mean that men are supposed to work outside the home and women are not? Not at all. It means that men and women are to live as partners in a way that is helpful to each other. And this will look different for each specific woman and specific man. And in the marriage union, it will play out in a way that addresses the unique needs, strengths, circumstances, weaknesses, and desires of each spouse. Listen, the world is trying to get you to embrace either ors where there are both ands and both ands where there are either ors. The world is convinced to convince you that there are things in the Bible that are limiting to you. And as a Christian, you should know, there are a lot of things in the Bible that are limiting to you. Because to say something is true is to say that something is not true. To say that something is good is to acknowledge bad. To say that something is beautiful is to acknowledge the absence of beauty. The Bible is drawing lines. But rather than them being narrow lines, they are lines of abundance. They are lines of generosity. They are lines that lead to flourishing when lived in faithfully. 
The writer of the Bible says that he has drawn the lines in pleasant places. God has given us an abundant field to play in, in partnership and intimacy and friendship. A beautiful song is what God is calling us to sing, textured and layered with both melody and harmony. Compliments to each other, not in competition, but in collaboration. That is the picture that Scripture is painting. It requires the necessary contributions of men and women, although many times those contributions will look different. And so there are three critical pitfalls that I want us to think about avoiding that I think are very tempting right now. Three pitfalls on this question of gender. The first is exaggerating our differences. Exaggerating our differences. Some want to exaggerate our differences. Looking to assert one gender as superior over another. Or at the very least, make it seem like we can't really understand and know each other. That's a lie. The Bible has created us for fellowship, not for forsakenness. We don't have to try to live at each other as if it's a competition or if there's a vast chasm between us. When there is confusion, we should seek clarity in God's word together, knowing that God intends to bind us together and not to bind us apart from one another. Okay? So we want to avoid exaggerating our differences. We want to avoid ignoring our differences. This is popular. Some may want to ignore our differences, prepared to pretend as if there are no differences between men and women. That's not true. There are differences. We are distinctively different, and that's okay. We were created to be. It's not a world of sameness. It's a world of unified distinctiveness, right? Any of you ever go to the DMA and you love just looking at all the paintings that are just monochromatic? Just one color, you walk around, and you think, wow, look at this white painting. Just white on white. Look at this blue painting, just a beautiful blue on blue, you know? No. You go there because an artist has taken a brush, he's taken a palette of colors, and he has said, I'm going to paint something that while it's composed of different things, presents a beautiful picture, right? We don't want to live in a world of sameness. We want to live in a world of unified distinctiveness, purposeful differentiation. Men and women are purposefully different, and the world works best when we live in a way that acknowledges that there are ways in which we are purposefully different. And the last one, this is the one where there's the most amount of pressure to reject our differences, to reject our differences. Some want to reject our differences, forbidding any mention of gender as a biological reality. And we're in a crisis moment culturally here. We really are. I've spent the last four months reading everything that's not nailed down on about gender. Everything. Everything I get my hands on. Every study, every data set, every book on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. I've read everything I possibly can. Part of that is driven by the fact that I'm raising a five-year-old daughter. Okay? But we know this. We know right now that there's increased pressure. There's a fervency and an urgency to a new kind of ideology that sounds like, whoa, you're telling me that, you're telling me that men and women, that these are just two things we can just flip-flop at any point, depending on how we feel? We know that's not right. Natural law tells us, our conscience tells us that's not truthful. It's not coherent. It's not meaningful. It's not beautiful. It's not persuasive. But there's an increased pressure to just kind of Keep it tight about it. Just zip it up. Just don't say anything about it. And while there are callous and comedic ways that we should avoid, convictional compassion is the necessary need for our day. To say true things in love is convictional compassion. And it is crucial that we become people of conviction and compassion. Now, I'm not saying callous conviction. I'm not saying 
comedic compassion. I'm not saying make light of everything, and I'm also saying don't walk out there with a stun gun ready to hit the next person you see. I'm saying convictional compassion, truth and love, grace and wisdom is what's required for us to operate in this time. We have to be people who are able to speak meaningfully and with love. Uh, Cardinal Robert Sarah of the Roman Catholic Church in reference to some of the current conversations on gender, sexuality, which we'll talk about next week, he says this, I'm afraid that we are tempted to build a human church according to the time and according to our ideas, but the church is not ours, and it's not. And the word of God is not ours, and the biology of our bodies, it's not ours. You know you're limited. And one of the principal ways that we're limited is that you and I, we didn't create the world. And there's increased pressure right now to refashion it in the best ideas and images of our day. And we feel foreign. We feel like aliens. And I'll tell you, you will spend the rest of your sojourn and pilgrimage in the global west of Christianity as an outlier. That's, that's the rest of your life. You're the stranger now. And for the rest of your following of Jesus in the global west, that will be the case. You should be prepared now to live a life where you exist as a fringe. Gone are the days of normativity on scriptural truths. It's gone. It's gone. We need to be prepared to live with convictional compassion. Even when the world stands athwart us, this has been the movement of the church from the beginning, and it will be the movement of the church in this century. In God's story, our differences should shape us, not divide us. Our differences are crucial to flourishing together. Galatians 3.28, Paul says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul was not the first gender theorist. Paul is not obliterating the difference between man and woman. Paul is saying, in light of these differences, in light of the difference between Jew and Greek, in light of the difference between slave and free, in light of the difference between male and female, differences that are real, differences that Paul is not diminishing or destroying, but that he's dignifying, in light of these very real differences, we, in the church of Christ, can be a witness to the world. While we acknowledge our differences, we find a greater unity in Jesus. While we acknowledge the differences between men and women, that we come together in the one who is Lord and Savior over all things, Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, our differences and distinctions are not destroyed. They are redeemed. And they are set within the proper context of the love of God and the love of one another. In Christ Jesus, it is possible for us to become good men and good women to complement and bless one another in an age of curse and in be a witness to the blessing of living life fully in Jesus. This is what God is inviting us into. If you're someone here who struggles with confusion around what it means to be a man or a woman, there is a great redemption. There is an incredible restoration. And while it will not be the affirmation of our culture, it will be the love of God. And it is greater. And there are guides here, people who will help people who will walk with you with all the patience that repentance requires and that clarity expects. And they will walk with grace and with patience because all of us, and as a reminder to you, all of us are broken sinners in need of grace. Every single one of us. If you're someone who's never had a man or woman in your life, 
that you feel like you could look at and imitate, there are men and women here who will say, follow me as I follow Jesus. There are guides here. You do not have to try to do this by yourself. There are guides. There are people who can help. There are people who have gone before who can help us find a road, and they might be a half step in front of you, but that half step is of consequence. There are guides here. And if you're concerned about the formation of kiddos and children in the life of the world in this present moment, let me encourage you, sit down together. Think through how you can raise your children in a way that reflects the truth, beauty, and goodness of God's world, the sanctity of living life as a good man or a good woman. And there are guides here. There are people that will help you. Let me beg you. Let me beg you. Let me speak specifically to moms and dads. Let me beg you. Let me implore you. Let me plead with you right now. Scripture says, what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? So many of us are at the beginning of this journey. And we have high hopes and dreams. And we want our kids to live lives of flourishing. Let me beg you. What does it profit your child to gain the next trophy or the next accolade or the next A++ or the next expectation met and lose their soul? Sit with your children, pray with them, catechize them in seconds if that's what they can give you, in minutes when they can give it to you, in hours, in days, in weeks, in months. Invest into them knowing that the compounding interest of formation, it moves quickly and time is of the essence. Spend time with your children. They're hungry for it. They desire to see the father's face and the mother's face. And when you get close to them, say, as close as I am to you, Christ is nearer still. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We ask your blessing over our church family. I pray that we would be people of convictional compassion. God, as Paul writes in Romans 12, I pray that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we would be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And I pray you would renew us by the authority of your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us. I beg you, Lord, that you would be merciful to us, that you would be merciful to our children, that an age of just um, digital enmeshment and cultural conformity, that you would bless our families as countercultural witnesses, people who speak truth in love. May we know your truth. May we speak it with mouths seasoned with grace and thanksgiving and mercy and compassion. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with me as we receive the Lord's Supper together?